uh, blessing to be with uh, my part of my larger family here at Epiphany. Um, Joe and I became friends actually during COVID, and uh, I love Joe like a brother. He loves me like um, a pain in the rear sometimes, but uh, God has blessed us in being able to um, minister together, to pray for one another. Um, I feel like I know you every time Joe and I get a chance to get together and talk and pray. So trust and pray that our time tonight would be sweet. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1, and I'm going to read, and you guys use this, the CSB, Joe uses that. Um, and I have a different text in here, so I'm going to read from here. If I get lost, it's because I can't read. I'm getting older here. And um, trust and pray that our time together, being in God's Word, as you guys start your new year together, uh, would be sweet when we come to God's Word and being able to gather and sing together. So Psalm 1, and uh, it's talking about two ways to live your life. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked, though, are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Ever hear this? Okay. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. I'd move up here, but I grew up as a really strict Baptist, and I don't have really great body movement. Right? That song was written by Grammy Award winner, producer, writer, Pharrell Williams, right? Made popular in Disney's Despicable Me Too. And isn't this how most people view happiness? It's a, a feeling. It's what we want to believe is true, even if it isn't. It's defined by the individual, and it's all about what I want to do. Every human on this planet, wakes up every day wanting and longing to be happy. It's interesting, more than anyone else, Aristotle enshrined happiness as the central purpose of human life and the very goal in itself. It's actually what Pharrell Williams is trying to capture in this song. In fact, one of his most uh, influential works, Aristotle, taught this. Happiness depends simply and merely on ourselves. 
And the key question that Aristotle wants to resolve and the question that Pharrell Williams is trying to capture is this. What is the ultimate purpose of human existence? Why are we here? What is the end or the goal which we should direct all our activities? In other words, what is the way to actually be happy? Psalms 1 seems to be specifically and written, composed, as kind of the introduction to the entire Psalter, which is split out into these larger books written a lot by David and other people that wrote the Psalms together. And he's going to contrast these two different ways to live your life, compared and contrast all throughout the Psalms. If you don't get Psalm 1, you don't fully understand what's being unpacked in the rest of the Psalms. Psalms were written in a poetical form. They're songs. They were sung. The first song that we sang tonight was based off of a psalm, right? They're prayers. So what are these two ways on how we can live our life? There's two ways that the psalmist says you can go about living your life. The first way is the way of the word. The second one is the way of the world. So the way of the word, verses 1 through 3. There's this word, blessed, which means happy. Whenever you see the word blessed or blessed in the scripture, it's talking about happiness. And he says here, happy is the person who doesn't walk, stand, or sit. And now the psalmist here has in mind conformity to this world in three different ways. Counsel, way, and seat. Counsel means thinking. It's how we think about life. It's accepting the world's or any advice or wisdom. Way means how we behave, how we actually live. And seat means belonging. It's how we, we, we adapt its values. So thinking, behaving, and belonging. It's the way of the, of, of the word. Now, thinking means that what actually shapes and influences how we think. So where do you think that maybe you and I have accepted the influence about why we think the way we do? Isn't it interesting that you don't have to necessarily teach a young person as they grow up? At some level, they will say to you as a parent about the fact, I don't like how I look. I'm not happy. I need this. And you're like, why? Well, if I get this, then I'll be kind of accepted by my friends. If I don't get this, I'm kind of rejected. Where did you get that thinking from? Well, social media, internet, friends at school, schoolyard, playground. So where are some of the things that we've adapted when it comes to how we think in the way of this world? One of the ways is a word called relativism. And all that means is, that is a doctrine that means there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute knowledge, that, you know, it actually is what it, whatever the individual experiences or what they think, well, that becomes truth. 
And I think that relativism has largely shaped the American church, how we think about our life, how we think about the world. Sadly to say is, I would say this, that the church has more been shaped by the world than the world has been shaped by the church. We've been shaped more by the world that we live in when God left us here to be what? Salt and light. To show the world. There is a better way. Now, this world can't give you the happiness that your heart is chasing. We are told to think a certain way about things in our culture that don't necessarily reflect who Jesus is. In fact, sometimes living and speaking and serving as the very presence of Jesus in our neighborhoods and communities is not received well by people, is it? So, thinking. What is it that shapes the way we think? The second idea is behaving. Paul appeals to the Christian believers in Rome, right? Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't let Rome, don't let its cultures shape or define in how you live. When we look at Scripture, Solomon was the wisest and wealthiest man that ever lived. And when he pens, by the Holy Spirit, the book of Ecclesiastes, he's struggling he used this phraseology, he looked at those under the sun. What were humans struggling for every day? What were they working so hard for? What were they worrying about? What were they chasing so hard? And so Solomon decides what? I decide that whatever my eyes see and whatever my heart wants, I will not deny it. Now all of us would love to be able to do that in a human form, right? But Solomon had the capacity to actually do that. He was king. He, his wealth and fame was known to every country, uh, tribe, and nation that surrounded Israel. Whatever he wanted, he got. And he comes to the end, and he says that when he looks at the end of this experiment, this is what he said. All was vanity. In other words, everything was empty. In other words, he got to the end, he didn't withhold anything he wanted, and at the end, he felt empty. He felt empty. Chasing the world can only leave you feeling empty. And lastly, the way of the word are people who don't behave like the world, don't think like the world, and then belonging. It's not where they go to find their identity. When we think about belonging, we think about things like identity and meaning and value and worth. C.K. Chesterton, a famous English writer, philosopher, he was a Christian apologist. He wrote this. He says it better than me, so that's why I'm going to quote him. When people choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. 
they then become capable of believing in anything. This is the culture that you and I are currently living in. Identity, meaning value and worth, have been tied to anything. Our world is crazy to a certain degree, right? Our world will take their identity and meaning and worth and they will attach it to anything. Even if it appears crazy. Even if it's destructive. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. See, belief in God doesn't make one turn and not believe in anything. No, you believe in everything, right? I'm going to believe in whatever I think can give me meaning. I'll attach it to it. A lot of times, there are good things, like job, career, families, dreams, athletics, advancement, right? Not bad stuff, but nonetheless, we attach ourselves to those things because if we have them, they will make me happy. I want to ask you a question today to think about. What have you attached your hope to? Because meaning, where you find meaning, where I find meaning, that's the thing you've attached your hope to. Because if that goes away, what happens? There's no more what? Me. That's what makes me me. Well, how do you know that? How do you know, how do I know what I've attached my hope to? I'm going to ask you a question. What is at the other end of your if-only statement? If I asked you a question, if only blank, if only blank, man, life would be great. If only my husband, if only my wife, if only I had that job, if only I had that body, if only I had those looks, if only I had that money, if only I lived in that place. If I could travel the world and do what I wanted to do and have the stuff that I could do that I see on Instagram, if I could have that life, you know, no one's, no one's making big bucks as an influencer on IG by posting horrible, depressing pictures. It's some you know, beautiful latte that's spun out somewhere on some beautiful beach, right? Well, if I could have that, then life would be great. Whatever is at the other end of your if only, that is your functioning deity. That is the thing you've attached your hope and meaning to. And he says this here in the text. Happy is the person who does delight and does meditate where. He's continuing this theme that whatever captures the thing a person treasures will ultimately shape that person's life. Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you can follow the crumb trail of your life, your schedule, your dreams, you follow it long enough, you will find the thing you've attached your heart to, your hope to. Delight means 
You know, first pleasure, enjoyment, and happiness. Delight is a response of the human heart to the beauty of valuing something. In this case, valuing God's word. You, not, you and I might not believe this, but the purpose of God's law, the purpose of God's word was to make you happy. Sometimes it seems God wants everybody else to be happy except me. We only tend to view God's word as being prohibitive, not freeing. It's telling me how I have to live my life. Well, who likes that? Your kids don't like it, but we don't like it either, right? I want to ask you a question, if you're familiar at all with the Ten Commandments. Anybody here familiar with the Ten Commandments? I want you to summarize the Ten Commandments in three words for me. Can anybody do that? How does this start out? Okay. Okay, well, that's, well that's, that's the right answer there. But how do they start off usually? Thou shalt not. Most people think of God's law as being that, right? Thou shalt not. As being prohibitive. And yet God's law is to be freeing. When God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not that God's against sex. It was his idea, not yours anyway. He made it, and he made it good, right? The idea is adultery can only leave what at the other end of it? Damage, destruction. It robs. It steals. There is no intimacy. There is no genuine love. When God says, thou shalt not, it's not that God is preventing joy and happiness. He's maintaining it for you. He's guarding it for you. God's word is good, so delight in it. I mean, think about the things that you delight in. It's amazing that when the psalmist writes about delighting God's word, he says it's sweeter than honey. It's more valuable than gold. So think about the thing you actually find delight in. There's this place up in Collingswood that uh, it's a bakery. And there's a, some, some people who've been serving there since it was open. They're not the nicest person, but they make some of the best donuts I've ever had. Cream donuts. So whenever we happen to go up that way, my wife and I, we stop by McMillan's because they have these cream donuts where there's more cream than donut. Literally. It's split. So uh, when we go up there, I just spoke up in Collingswood, um, at Liberty in Collingswood not too long ago, and she said, we are leaving earlier, right? Why? McMillan's is open. It's right down the street, right? Delight. When you delight in something, right, it's you desire it. And when you eat and you taste it, you take it in, right? He's saying is, happy is the person who delights in my word. And then meditate. Our lives are unbelievably distracted, right? Who has time? We are all experts at multitasking, surfing, and skimming, but man, we cannot meditate. You know, you think it's just the kids who have ADD. No, it's us too, right? It's just like we are 
our minds are going all over the place, right? How do we actually stop and think about what does not, not just what God's word says, but what does it mean? What is, what is the word of God actually saying? Meditation involves careful, sustained thought. It takes work. It involves the will, and you cannot do it apart from the enabling grace of God's spirit. Meditation allows the word of God to penetrate our minds, to go down deep into our hearts and our wills. It sends out down deep roots, like the tree planted by waters. Have you ever noticed, even when you've gone through a really bad drought time, if you're taking a walk, Joe and I love to take walks together. And if we're walking by a stream there, it's amazing how a tree that's planted by a a stream will somehow be able to send its roots out and hang on the ledge of that bank, right? And somehow this tree is still blooming. Why? Because it's going deep. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Meditation sends our roots deep down, taking in more and more of the life-giving water of the word. Meditation ultimately produces delight. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're not, we typically want the delight part up front and we want to not have to deal with the duty part. I want the joy up front. Have you ever tried this? You sit down in the morning, you try to pick up God's word and read it. Um, Two minutes in, it's like, yeah. Let me find a passage I can get excited about here. Yeah, no, no, no. This one. Oh, yeah, here. And I have my kind of like my go-tos I can go to because why I'm, I'm looking for something quickly. Duty leads to delight. For instance, um, I've used Joe a lot tonight. I'm sorry. Don't tell on me. Uh, but Joe recently, the past year, uh, him and I, when we get together to talk about it, uh, he got into going to the gym to work out, right? He works out there. Uh, I, I will tell you this here. When you first go start going to the gym, most people don't go and they delight in it. It's hard work, right? And I go, I, I've been going now for a month, and I step on the scale. What does it say? Get off. <laughs> you know? Uh, it, nothing's changed. Or I've actually put weight on. Because, you know, as your body changes, you know, Muscle actually weighs more, right? It can be really discouraging, right? You have to remember this here. Just like anything in life, duty leads to delight. And frankly, most of us don't want that when it comes to the Word of God. There are times that we need to read and dig and meditate and think. And up front, it doesn't give you the up front good feeling that we're looking for. No. Dig deep. Meditate. Think about it. Let God's Spirit grow that in us to understand it to meditate on it. I can't tell you how often I have meditated over and over and over on a scripture and I'm not getting it and all of a sudden I'm out walking and God's spirit takes the word and 
plants it in my face. I didn't understand that. Meditate on it. Delight in it. Because we'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Fruit doesn't come automatically. And by the way, we are not fruit producers. We are fruit hangers. God's Spirit, by His grace, hangs fruit on our lives. I love what Jeremiah 17 says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. Again, sounding like Psalm 1 here. Sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Did you notice what Jeremiah says? It does not fear when the heat comes. Being a follower of Jesus does not remove you from the heat of life. Heat's coming. Heat's here for many of you. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, right? But tonight, and heat is here. My life, it, it's hard. It's hot. It's difficult. No, because when we when we trust in God, right, it sends those roots deep. And it does not fear when the heat comes because of what it's attached its hope to. If you attach your hope to you, yes, you have much to fear when the heat comes. Why? Because it's up to you. If my, if my hope is attached to Christ, we sang Cornerstone, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Happiness in spite of the heat. So, the way of the word. It's contrasted against the way of the world in verses 4 through 6. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. The wicked of Psalm 1 are those who seek to live their lives independent from God. Those who only have a human or earthly perspective on life, who, like the idea of God but don't want to be told how to live their life, right? Hey, I'm into Jesus. I'm just not into religion. What do you actually mean by that? We might mean the same thing. We might not, right? If by religion you mean, I don't want to be told how to live my life. No, no, no. That's not, that, that is Jesus. Why? Because without Jesus, you don't have life. Jesus is life. That's the whole point, right? So this is the way of the wicked. They love his goodness. They love his love. They love the grace stuff, the compassion stuff. But don't tell me how to live. And it describes them that they are like chaff. They're like the covering of uh, the seed of wheat. I know you guys are going to be upcoming series is coming up. You're going to go through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, right? Right? So we just finished up Ruth through Advent together. And it's interesting. That's where Ruth and Boaz meet on a threshing floor. 
During harvest, they would take the barley or the grain and they would go up to a very windy, breezy area, part of their land, and they would let the barley or the wheat dry out and then they would beat it and they would toss it in these large sheets or canvases into the air. And the chaff, which is nothing, blows away and the reality of the seed drops to the ground. He says they're like chaff. They look good. They actually look like the barley or the wheat, but they're actually not. They're merely a covering. They're there one minute, and they're blown away. It says they will perish. Psalm 73, one of my most favorite psalms in the Psalter, was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader. Under King David, he wrote several of the Psalms. And there's in Psalm 73, this is what he, I'm going to summarize it for you. He says, as I looked out at the world, I thought for a moment that I pursued a life of purity in vain. Why? As I look at the world, their bodies are sleek, they're slim, they live at ease, they have no pain, they have everything that they want. Asaph is suffering, he says, was pursuing a life of holiness and following God worth it? And it says that Asaph went in to worship God, and while he's worshiping, it says he considered the end of the wicked. And then there's this turn in the psalm. He moves from jealousy to what? Pity. Why? What is the end of the wicked? They shall perish. Right now, the world looks like they have the ideal life, right? They have the best jobs. They have the best homes. They have the best families. They don't seem to have the same care and burdens that I have in being a follower of Jesus. I thought this following Jesus thing was going to make my life better. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, this question is raised, what does it profit a man or a person to gain the world only in the end to forfeit your own soul? The world is always offering us something that is less as if it's actually more. Have you ever watched an infomercial? Not many of them today. There's something, right? An infomercial is basically what? They make a promise that if you buy this product, you can look like this. Right? If you take this pill... Three times a day, you know, you look like the rock. Sign me up for that pill, right? I'm on. I don't care how bad it tastes, how big it is, I'll get it down. It's making a promise that it can't deliver on. Do you understand that's what the world does every day to us and to the rest of humanity? 
It's making a promise that if you have this thing, if you live this way, if you have this stuff, if you have this kind of life, you too can be what? Happy and have meaning and purpose and fulfillment. It cannot deliver on what it's selling us. Let's come back as we conclude together this evening to consider Aristotle and the psalmist. Aristotle representing the way of the world, the psalmist representing the way of the word. Remember, Aristotle pondered this. What is the chief end of humanity? And this was his answer. A happiness that depends only and solely on you. The psalmist proposed this same question. What is the chief end of humanity? A happiness that depends on Christ and Christ alone has nothing to do with you or with me. Well, you don't know what my life's been like. You don't know how I lived. You don't know the baggage, the destruction. Why would God want someone like me? No, it's life can only be found in him. Happiness can never depend on yourself. I think it is a tragic shame that people live in this world trying to think that the next thing, the next thing will make me what? Happy. That will make me happy. That will give me purpose. That will make me feel like my life has meaning. I think the saddest thing is people who live and breathe inside a church like Epiph, who are taught the word of God, who are sitting here thinking that your happiness depends on you. That is profoundly sad. Talk about the uh, living the, the rat race of life on a treadmill you can never get off of. I hate the treadmill. Why? Because I can run and run and run. And I never go anywhere. That's this world. The hope of the gospel is this. Jesus did for you and for me what we are fully incapable of ever doing for ourselves. He obtained a life for us that you and I could never earn or never deserve. He died the death that we all deserved. He lived the life that none of us ever could. The full and free gift of Christ. This is the hope of life. This is what can make you happy. Consider the words of a poet. I'm not a big poet guy, but Robert Frost. He said this. He penned these words. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I 
I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. May you, by God's grace, choose the way of the word and stop trying to live in the way of the world. May you and I lay hold of the blessing of Psalm 1 and delight in the beauty and value of taking that road less traveled, walking by the way of the world. Listen to the words as I conclude here in Deuteronomy 33. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you? And why are you happy? A people saved by God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise your great and holy name for everything that you've done, for everything you are. Lord, this world has nothing for us. May we follow you. My prayer is there's someone here tonight who's been striving to find a place to belong, to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And all they've ever known is the thinking of this world. May they know that happiness cannot be found in anything, in anyone, save Jesus Christ. You said that today is a day of salvation. If there's someone here right now, may they, right where they sit, cry out, to Jesus. Father, forgive me. Save me. Cleanse me from my sin. May I attach my hope to you and you alone forever and ever. May we never forget that the Lord is our salvation. 